0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, I'm speaking with my friends David Noel and Leif Rogers, partners and co-founders at Red Phoenix Entertainment, a firm that bridges American sports and entertainment with emerging markets by connecting sports stars, celebrities, and musicians with global companies and brands, helping to expand sponsorships, branding, and market presence across Asia for American brands, stars and sports, and vice versa, back in America for Chinese sports stars and brands. In this episode, we discuss the opportunity available to sports brands and the sports themselves. It's present and clear in China market today how they help purely domestic Chinese corporate entities build presence in America through sporting sponsorships, the importance of using agencies to go cross-border as local market sherpas and their five tiers of brand building success. David, what is your favorite Chinese brand and why?
1: Yeah, my favorite Chinese brand would have to be Li-Ning, the sports apparel company. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, we Red Phoenix are a sports company ourselves, and Li Ning has their history rooted in sports. The founder was a Chinese Olympian. Uh, but really, the the reason why I'm so impressed by the brand is their willingness to look outside of the box and really buck. Uh the the typical Chinese trend and and you know they're very active with American sports, they're also stepping into the American entertainment space and constantly uh redefining themselves and pushing out products that frankly are um very competitive against the big American shoe companies like and apparel companies.
0: Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber and Facebook. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Okay, welcome back to the show, everybody. As you know, I'm here with David and Leif. David and Leif, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you very
1: much. We're excited to be here.
0: As usual, I wanna get our guest's China story. So Leif, why don't I start with you? You and I actually go way back. You spent uh, a lot of time in Dalian, you lived in Dalian. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in China and your days with the bank of Jinzhou and such.
2: Um, I arrived in August of 2005 into the tier three city of Jinzhou um, on a one-year contract. And I didn't even know if I was gonna last that long. And I was consulting for an alternator company that had signed a contract with GM and doing any job on the side I could to um, make money while I was there. And through that process, I worked for a couple other companies um, consulting for them and met the president of the bankage in Joe. And at that time he'd gone through three British um, and Hong Kongese bankers that only lasted a couple of weeks at the bank. And, Um, I was kind of the last shot for the bank and to develop their international department and attract foreign companies to the bank of Jinzhou. And um, I ended up staying with the bank for 12 years.
0: Wow. Okay. And David, what about you? How did you end up in China? When what were you doing when you got there? That kind of thing.
1: Sure. Yeah. So this was back in 2011, uh, right in the middle of the economic crisis here in the U.S. And I was a recent college graduate. And, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, what career path I wanted. Um, the, the job market was very slow here. There weren't a lot of options, uh, you know, just struggling to, to really to get by. And I, I saw, you know, meanwhile in the news every day about China and their economy growing. And it just really, you know, it was kind of a naive uh, idea i had but i said to myself you know i just need to get over to china and see what's going on and you know i've always appreciated traveling and just wanted to do something different so at that time i started talking to people who had gone to china and figured out you know how they did it and what they had done and i came into connection with somebody who recruited uh, english teachers Uh, to to teach in different provinces throughout China so I convinced my then girlfriend now my wife to come with me and we quit our jobs and essentially moved to a place that I had never been and I didn't speak a word of Chinese Um, and I had taught English there for about a year uh, and really enjoyed it I had actually met Leif during that time in China and we you know um, grew a very strong friendship together and uh, at that time I decided I wanted to go back to America and go to graduate school, but I uh, decided to focus my master's on China itself. So I I studied Chinese international affairs and business um, and came back to America and went throughout my grad program and worked for a few years in banking afterwards, but um, ended up um, with Red Phoenix and with being Leif's partner, going back to China quite frequently. So over the past, I'd say uh, seven or eight years, I've, I've been in China quite a bit.
0: May I ask from, you know, of somebody who has studied, what did you call it? Chinese international affairs and and business. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the biggest difference between things that they were teaching or that you learned and what is actually uh, boots on the ground? The reality of doing business in China.
1: (laughs) That's funny. You know, I don't from from the international affairs perspective. I mean, I, I've never worked in, in politics or for the government, so I, I can't quite answer that. I mean, it was a very interesting graduate program. But from the business side, you know, to be honest, I don't think I'd ever took one good class on Chinese business because I just don't think it's been studied enough or at least maybe it changes so quickly that. there's not really a science to it. It's more, I mean, to be completely frank, it's, it's more of a slog. I mean, you just have to go in there and not give up and and try to adapt and and try to learn on your feet. So what I did learn a lot was through my Chinese language courses or just, you know, studying the culture itself.
0: Okay, guys. So you're both partners and co-founders at red Phoenix entertainment. Talk to us about what it is that red red Phoenix entertainment does.
1: Yeah, sure. So Red Phoenix Entertainment is a uh, we serve as a bridge between American professional sports and China. And you can really boil that out down into a few different areas. So one of those areas is helping Chinese brands to secure uh, sponsorships with professional sports teams here in the States. Another area is helping those brands to secure endorsements with professional athletes. And a third area is doing athlete exchanges and media productions. And and so that's more of a creative box. Uh, We've led athletes on brand building tours throughout China helped secure um, different sorts of events with uh, community events or with media. And we've also produced a number of documentaries and, and sports related media content. So Really, what we try to do is is create a secure and trusted bridge for both the Americans and the Chinese to engage with each other. And in the sports world, you know, it's not a heavily regulated space. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, just um, uncertainty, I would say, both from the American side as well as the Chinese side. And so what we attempt to do is make it a safe, easy way for for brands and, and sports teams and sports players to engage with each other.
0: So would you say you're in the business of American brand building, uh, American sports brand building in China?
1: I would say that's that's definitely a big, that's one side of the same coin. So yeah, certainly it's American sports brand building in China. And on the other side of that, it would be Chinese corporate brand building here in the United States.
0: Okay. So talk to me a little bit about how do you do that other side of the coin? How do you do... Chinese corporate brand building in America.
2: Back to David's earlier answer that, you know, we always just try to eliminate the nonsense from both sides. And so serve as a true bridge company between the Asian market and the U.S. market. Obviously, I mean, China is probably 90% of our focus, but we're also active in Korea, Japan, Indonesia, other uh, Southeast Asian countries saying that for building a corporate presence here. Um, you have three types of, um, brands in kind of in the sports space. You have your big global brands that are, um, you know, obviously selling them to a global audience that are trying to, um, expand their brand in the U S market, but probably, I would say a good 60 to 70% of our endorsements and sponsorships are actually brands that aren't purely domestic. And this is, um, strictly due to streaming and technology that um, on all these platforms over in Asia and you know whether it's Tencent or Alibaba you have NHL, NBA um, specific teams that are always streamed or put on their networks and so they're not necessarily appealing to an American audience. They may be thinking about that for the future but they're appealing just to their own domestic audience but putting it on such a large grand scale in the US which is kind of the premiere of obviously basketball or you know these other premier sports leagues um you know sets them above and beyond their, their domestic competitors another point i would just add to what leif had said and to answer your question todd
1: about how we approach chinese brands um, you know what's interesting is it's like using different sides of your brain in a sense so when we're working with american organizations or players to build their brand in asia it's a much more American approach. I mean, we sit down, we try to outline a roadmap, really the goals that they are trying to obtain and actionable steps on how we can take them there. Um, now, dealing with Chinese brands, at least from my own perspective, it's, it's much less straightforward. Um, it's gonna be very difficult to sit down with a brand and have them sit, sit there and tell you, hey, here's my goal and here's my strategy and here's my roadmap. It's just not something that's commonly done. Um, And so we have to rely, I would say, a lot more on almost intuition or even understanding of the Chinese culture and the Chinese psyche as much as you can do that, right? Um, And, you know, we have Chinese partners, we have Chinese employees. Leif and I have lived in China and we spend a lot of time there. And so that, I think, is a trickier um, service to add, uh, but it's something that we certainly try to do and, and we've been pretty happy with what we've done so far.
0: Yeah, you're right. It does take uh, relationships and the relationship building side of it. How would you compare, you know, and dive a little deeper into the comparison between building a relationship with the Chinese companies to help them you know, do business here or wherever uh, versus developing the relationships with the the North American, whether it's the sport brands, you know, the NFL, Major League Baseball, whoever, to help them go over there. Just in that, that process of building the relationship, how does it differ?
2: Finding the decision maker in a Chinese organization, whether that's medium size, even SMEs, and finding, you know, peeling back that layers of onion to find who – is the power behind the structure and the relationship to who the investors are and all that takes us? Um, it's a very long and tough um, battle for us to do with every organization. Then, um, just due to the culture, and we we experience this with all Asian brands. They might be just using Red Phoenix to um, quote a price, but they actually have you know an agency that they're already. Um, that they have some relationship with, and so we spend so much time one getting um, going through the layers to find the people that matter in an organization, and then also vetting out that organization to see if it's um, you know a legitimate bid or not or a request. So uh, with China, um, what I see so many American industries doing, and Todd and you as well, you have so many that they make their one trip over there and. You know they visit Beijing or Shanghai or may- maybe they've made two trips and you know oh they've got China uh, figured out and then they expect to do it all all the business from here and uh, it's just impossible I would say in Asia together but especially in China where it requires a constant presence and a constant um, going and visiting not just Beijing or whatever but where their their headquarters or their factories are and getting to know the brands and then through that process you get to know the uh, decision makers. And if you take my bank, for example, I worked for the bank of Jinzhou for 12 years. There was one, maybe two decision makers and a company of 24,000. And one of those was in the city of Jinzhou where headquarters was. And the other one was in Beijing. If you had to pick a third, even kind of so-so decision maker, he was in Beijing as well. So, um, And he was not in the top 10 of the bank in formal leadership structure. He was like would be the equivalent of the 11th or 12th, but he retained so much power to who he was and what he'd done for the bank. He was the, the next in line to be president of the bank.
0: What would you say is Red Phoenix's secret sauce?
2: I mean, I, I think it's being on the ground and, and, and knowing, knowing the culture. There's so many frustrating things on the American side that I, I perceive from their eyes. And it's why we've been able to break into Korea right away is we've identified what's annoying about American industry and American sports industry, especially. So when we go approach these brands, we know their pain points. We know what's difficult for them. And we understand how frustrating it's frustrating for me. And I'm, I'm an American myself, but uh, it drives me. The, the pace over here drives me absolutely insane. The amount of emails, the amount of legal that uh, you have to deal with on, on, on a contract and the expenses relating to that legal, and for stuff that's you know ninety nine point nine nine percent never going to happen, and this is frustrating for many of our clients. And so when we approach a brand, that it might be just tackling that one thing, and that gains their trust, and you know we, we produce an endorsement or a, a content or whatever that activation is that they, they like, and then it opens the doors to other things.
1: Yeah, and and I would just to echo Leif's point, I mean, so much of it, I don't know that it's secret sauce as much as it is just perseverance. I mean, you know, every I think every company needs some moments where they get lucky or they have good timing. And we've certainly had some of those moments, but we've had probably even more moments of projects that did not develop or projects that, um, kind of fell through and and it's really tough. I mean, especially in the sports world uh, these deals take months and sometimes years to develop and just to get to the, the point where you're negotiating a contract out and then for them to fall apart due to something, you know, it could be anything. It could be a, something with the trade war. Or it could be, you know, the brand just decided it wasn't the right time. Um, and And it can be, it can really feel devastating at moments when you've put so much, blood, sweat and tears into these deals and you've traveled so much and you've spent so many hours away from your family, it can be really tough. And I think that a lot of companies that decide to to try to do business in Asia in general once they get a couple of those stings, you know, they may tell themselves, well, you know, I I maybe it's just not for me. And that's something that Red Phoenix has never done. I mean, there've certainly been times where we've we've wanted to do that, but we've just always stayed at it. And um and I think because of that we've had some really exciting projects as well. So uh, really, I think it's perseverance and it's being able to build a team that has expertise in both cultures. And, and again, I mean, Leif and I are both Americans, but we have Chinese partners. We have Chinese employees. And uh, I mean, you could argue that Leif is just as much Chinese as he is in, as he is American, at least in terms of how how many years he's lived there. So I think we, we do a pretty good job at bridging both cultures.
0: Guys, can you speak to the importance of using an agency like yourselves or even WPIC marketing technologies. Just speak a little bit to the value add or the examples of why it's important to go with people who understand the landscape and know how to navigate the local landscape.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, it's a great question. I think we could have an entire podcast just on this one subject. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and it's it's similar to why, you know, you wouldn't probably do surgery on your own leg. Uh, rather than going to a doctor, I mean, you really need somebody who understands the landscape and how it works. And all you need to do is look at the news to see ample examples of American companies that are misstepping or, or kind of blundering in China. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, it can happen to anybody, but you certainly I would think if you're going to invest your time and resources into China, you would want to have somebody to to help guide you. And, you know, I'll just give one example and not to pick on any one league in particular, but I mean, you look at, you know, a league like the NHL or the NFL who are, you know, just hugely successful uh, here in the West and they've had kind of slow starts over in China. And, you know, part I think a big part of that is because uh, both hockey and American football just aren't big sports in China to begin with. It's not really part of the culture, but having said that, um, they've certainly spent a lot of money um, trying to, develop those leagues on the surface level, but I don't know how much they've really rolled up their sleeves, so to speak, and really truly engaged with Chinese, the Chinese and Chinese culture. And as an example of that, I mean, we recently brought Adrian Peterson, the running back from the NFL to China, and uh, we spent a lot of time trying to convince um, organizations to, to support that push. Um, but you know, in the end, it was really our company that led him there that, you know, we rolled up our sleeves. We did a lot of community events and clinics and um, just really trying to engage with the Chinese. And as a result of that, he became the second most followed NFL player in China. And I mean, you're talking f- over a one week trip that that our team organized. And I'm not saying that um that we have all the right answers. But what I am saying is that you certainly want to um, attempt to understand the culture and the marketplace there uh, bef- before you go there. Um, and Leif, I- I'm sure that you have plenty of stories to add.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, in my time in China, I was also the initially the vice chairman the chairman of the American chamber. And my job allowed me to go to, I was pretty much in a different city almost every day. And so foreign companies in general, there's some, um, uh, countries that I feel do it better than others. But North American companies, I would say, I don't know the statistics on it. I don't have the numbers, but um, just from my own experience, probably nine out of 10 fail within the first year, maybe the first two years. And all I saw and all I had for customers of my bank were companies that repeatedly fail and oftentimes didn't take the advice. of local experts and local companies whether that be european or canadian or british that were successful there um you know this is what works in america and we're going to stick with it and yet on the flip side of the coin you have companies like dow chemical that have been very successful in china and it's again a knowledge of the uh the marketplace a knowledge of culture and then more importantly to david's point is using um the whether it was their local staff or whatever, and take keeping their advice on how to be successful, but still sticking within your company's um structure and 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 strategic goals and so um I've seen way more companies fail than I'd ever liked to, and uh lost a lot of customers over the years because of it. but I would have to say out of those nine out of ten i'd at least seven seven or eight of them failed because they failed and not because China failed them.
0: What do you think the opportunity is for brands, um, whether it's sports brands or otherwise in China, um, is the opportunity still as large and as exciting and enticing as it has been?
2: I would say it's even more exciting. Um, Asia itself, sports is extremely hot right now. Um, they're all, I mean, demographically, they're all aging populations. As you all well know, Todd, um, for pretty much for at least the last 100 years, the focus has been on study and PE and physical activity is kind of taking, taken, you know, a, a was put on the back burner. And that is all we're seeing it across the board in Korea, Japan, Indonesia, Philippines, China, where fitness, healthy eating, sports, sports activities. Um, We have a partner in Beijing that runs a football, baseball and hockey camp for children that are like three to seven before they have the pressure of, you know, the intense studying in their school system. And um, from that, now the elementary schools are asking, hey, can you bring in these programs into and so It's just a focus all the way around just healthy and fitness, not to mention that you have the Winter Olympics in 2022 in Beijing. You have the Tokyo Olympics this year. And then more importantly, it's just our modern millennial age of access to all those platforms and all those different sports before, you know, it was what was on CCTV five. And that's what we, you know, it was either soccer, badminton, ping pong, or Um, basketball. And now because of all these different streaming platforms, they have access to UFC and horse riding and skateboarding and extreme sports. And all of these are taking off again across Asia. And there's, so these little niches are just blossoming and a lot of brands that aren't your big, huge Nike, Adidas, these type of brands, but could be a snowboard brand that if they do it and they do it right, they're flourishing over there. And we're seeing that Across China and across Asia,
0: in the world of sports and brand building that you guys have been doing, what has been the most effective way for you to be able to help a brand build its presence in a place like China?
2: We 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 t- tend to hit that on five kind of uh, five tiers. Um, it's when we're brand building, it's media, it's um, on the ground activities like grassroots initiatives, camps, um, etc. It's meeting with the brands directly. The power of that is so misunderstood here in the US where, you know, they would have no interest in the NFL or, you know, whatever league that is. But if you're on the ground meeting them and their executives with that, you watch how fast they become a fan of that team or a fan of that sport. And just by being there on the ground, the other one that a lot of people overlook is government relations. As you all know, Todd, government in China is, is everything. And that's, uh, uh, you know, they control the state owned industries. They, they control the message, what, you know, the initiatives are and all that and having government relations can build so much in the forms of sponsorship and uh, um, activation and and strategy for all these brands. And then take, um, we have a deal with uh, Ling Long Tire with the NHL. And while that was, a big feather in our caps because um, the, you know, Chinese, even their global sponsors haven't really ventured into the NHL with the exception of ORG packaging, which he's just a massive fan of hockey and played hockey himself. Um, this was like a, the first, you know, real brand that has uh, approached the NHL. And if, you know, as much as that was strategy and and they chose Tampa Bay for the location in the South, cause that's, Um, where the tire industry um, is so focused with all the car dealerships and tire factories and all the racing and everything down there. I would say probably 60% of that decision was because of the winter Olympics and trying to please the central government of China.
0: Talking about building sports brands in China that's such a unique perspective to what most people are doing over there so i'm interested to know where's the money flowing is it going into the textiles is it going into the, the the swag you know the t-shirts the hoodies is it going into camps is it going into sports fields and and league operations is, is it all being spent on Tabo Mall? talk to me a little bit about, about where this the the opportunity is uh, and what's happening as far as the money flow and the monetary side of it
1: yeah, I mean, the, the the money is everywhere, to answer your question. And, I mean, if you look at the numbers that uh, the Chinese government have projected on, onto how big the sports industry is growing, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but it's just it's absolutely mind-boggling um, how they project the sports industry to grow. And this has been a very deliberate approach by the Chinese central government to grow this industry. And and what's so interesting about, about your question, Todd, is that you know, we can talk about sports and marketing, but really it's a reflection of China as a whole. Um, So many people think of China still in the West as the world's, uh, you know, manufacturer, and it's really just changing so quickly. And so much of their technology is leapfrogging ours. And China um, being very kind of smart and wise about this, sees the potential of sports and and, and how much that can impact its its uh, its population. And so they've been deliberately growing the entire sports economy. And so to answer your question, um, you know, when you look at basketball or soccer, for example, which is just absolutely humongous in China, um, the money is flowing everywhere. It's flowing back here into America, uh, directly to athletes uh, for product endorsements. It's flowing into teams for sponsorships or into Europe with, uh, You know, European football clubs. Back in China, um, you know, who who is actually paying all this money to endor to get endorsements with the athletes? Well, it's financial services, it's you know, alcohol companies, it's uh, food and clothing and apparel, and I mean, it's just really it's it's very similar to the American market in that sense. Now, when you talk about other sports which are starting to grow, like winter sports and ice hockey, or even you know things like running and fitness um it, it's a little bit different but it's starting to go the way of soccer and basketball and so what i mean by that is being in a very kind of early stage um most of the money is more around the educational components or the camps and the clinics you know as people are just trying to learn about well how do you play ice hockey or how do you play american football and so a lot of that money is around that level where um you know they're just starting to develop parks or they're building uh, schools and in training programs, but as that starts, as those sports start to gain in popularity, um, you know you're going to see the the consumer goods products and the financial services products start to take interest once they see that there are a lot of Chinese who are watching those sports or participating. And um, so it's a it's a very interesting time because when you look at the U.S you know, it's so saturated with all of our sports and they're all pretty much mature to the point where, um, you know, you just see the big sponsors engaging with it in China. You can very clearly see the progression of some sports compared to others. And I think that's a, a, that should be a hopeful sign, um, for every sport aside from basketball and soccer. Uh, you know, there is a path forward. You just have to do it the Chinese way.
2: Yeah, and I was just going to add, Todd, that what has been such a breath of fresh air for me after living and working in China for 12 years, and we were in the Northeast, which is the uh, most state-owned enterprise, heavy industrial, um, is the breath of fresh air for me is the companies that we're working and just kind of the whole business sports marketing culture in itself over there is the capacity... To think outside the box, to start taking on risk, not just copying what the other brand is doing, and and p- taking the safe route. We with that has been such a wonderful experience for me. Now we're dealing with pioneering brands that are you know enormous in China and now starting to be enormous globally, and then there's a reason for that. But just the out of the box mindset that i'm the transformation of that where even just two years ago it was no we just want this and we want to copy what the other brand did and we know that's going to be successful and now i i feel that you know and david if you want to back me up on this that we're seeing brands across the board large small some state-owned connected some private some very small all trying to come up with a, a new way and uh uh, and take that risk, and that that's been amazing to see in China itself.
0: I want to ask you guys about what messages are resonating. When you are taking a North American brand to to China, let's let's take one of the big sports, one, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, whoever. What are what is the strategy around the messaging about the sport that you find is really working, and vice versa? What is the messaging you would you would give to a like a, a brand like a Li Ning or something that is really trying to make its mark and be um and and have a foothold in North America? What is the messaging that you're recommending them to come back over, uh, bring back with them when they come this way?
2: The, the other great thing about since we formed Red Phoenix is battling those misconceptions, even that I harbor myself. And the Adrian Peterson trip was a classic example. Our Chinese staff, um, our Chinese partners didn't understand the NFL is not popular in China. Why are we doing this? Um, the NFL has been in China for, I believe, 19 years now. And still have yet to hold the game there, and you know they do what they can, but it's it's that old thing, Todd, that you you, you understand well. There's if you have 0.1 percent of the population, that's still millions and millions of people, and it's just connecting to those fans. And I surprisingly am learning all this myself. Is the fact that like we had the. Um, fans in Beijing and Shanghai the opportunity to meet Adrian when he was there on the ground and to send in messages um, of why, you know, Adrian was their favorite player and why they deserved to meet him. And just the knowledge of the NFL was dumbfounding to me. We were talking to kids that appeared because he ended up meeting a couple in Beijing and a couple in Shanghai that they knew more about the sport than I ever did, and probably more than you know, Todd or David knows. I mean, they knew the where the the, the NCA where they came up from. They knew the, the who was on their practice roster. They were sitting there naming plays, and it wasn't scripted. It wasn't like they looked up Adrian Peterson on Wikipedia, which really resonated with Adrian because he obviously remembered that one play when he was playing the the Broncos, and so they're immediately hitting it off. And th- th- this was just the fans that wrote in on this one, uh, you know, chance to meet Adrian. And I mean, there was a guy in Beijing who had a mural of Adrian Peterson painted on his Beijing apartment. And it's just those misconceptions from both sides. Same thing with the Chinese brands, the Chinese brands, they, 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 oh, the NFL is not popular. Oh, the NHL is not popular. And we're showing them, no, not only is it popular here, and there is a huge population. And for like the NHL, the government is supporting it. And you, you know, all those touch points, but uh um teaching them that hey if you're the first one to endorse the NFL or you're the first one to endorse a player in the NFL that's much more uh of an ROI than just sponsoring a, you know some bench player for a team in you know Portland or something that you're not going you know you're just one of many brands that choosing the safe route is is as harming to them as and and then and then the misconceptions of what the results of that are going to be are on both sides are, uh, um, you know, a big challenge, but it's also a great thing to experience and change that, that way of thinking. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, my
1: take on that too is when we're talking to athletes or teams who want to develop their Chinese brand um, you know, what we say is it's not, China has matured enough that it's not enough just to be famous and go there and voila, you know, you build your brand. I mean, yeah, sure. There are some people like the Kobe Bryants who, you know, of course they can keep doing that, but you know, if you're an athlete, you're not the first famous person to visit China. And so you need to start engaging the Chinese culture and the success that we've seen with athletes and teams are usually centered around, Hey, look, you know, we're this famous player, we're this famous team, but, we're here in China and we're engaging with you. And so that sounds kind of elementary, but it's, it's pretty true. I mean, you need to engage them on a cultural level um, and make it look like you're actually happy to be there. Right. I mean, you can't, um, you you can't just kind of do a passive uh, trip or a passive endorsement um, because the fans are going to, they're going to pick up on that and they're pretty quickly going to say, well, you know, you're not that interesting. And so I think, you know the American side needs to step up their game and start treating uh, the Chinese marketplace like a more sophisticated consumer base, um, and really try to understand what their motivations are and the, the demographics, et cetera. On the flip side, what I see the, the Chinese companies really needing to do, especially as they're looking to build their brands abroad, is they need to they need to shed that stereotype of Chinese quality. Right. And, and we all know it. I mean, when you buy a Chinese product, you know, how long is it going to last when it's set next, uh, in comparison with a German product or, you know, a Canadian product, et cetera. Um, and, but we, at the same time, we know that the Chinese are starting to make, and they have been making very good products and in, in their tech space, uh, they have a lot of really interesting, things coming out there that, again, are leapfrogging Western technology. And so I think the Chinese need to start um, branding in a way that they can shed that stereotype of low quality. All we're ever going to do is copy other brands. Um, And they need to start pitching themselves as innovative companies. And a way to do that is to go outside of just the traditional marketing trends in China. And to Leif's point, start uh, associating yourself with the unique um, unique sports and unique players, et cetera. And I, I think we're going to continue to see that. And, you know, when I answered the question of, um, about who's my favorite company in China, and when we talk about Li Ning, you know, th- that's exactly why we think that they're such a, an interesting company is because they're really bucking the trend when it comes to um, doing partnerships with really interesting, unique brands and players.
0: Okay, so guys, we're talking about sports, and obviously there was um, a very important um, social media event where there was a tweet that got the NBA in a bit of um, hot water. And so that just speaks to um, cultural misunderstandings, I would say. And as, as, as a couple of individuals and an entity like Red Phoenix Entertainment that is taking brands and trying to help them develop in other areas of the world where they're not as well known, how much importance and, and how do you guys help those companies understand how to do uh, and navigate the deli- the nuances and the the delicateness of certain topics let's say
2: yeah um, with regards to the tweet I mean this is goes back to the point with having Sherpa I mean whether you're on either side you know no nobody was right or wrong in this it's just understanding the marketplace and the impact of what a tweet can do that could be conceived as perfectly harmless, and you're right as a citizen here, um, I don't think the impact um, was understood um, on that particular case. And I don't think it's our social media and how we express ourselves here is that impact is, whether it's an athlete or anyone, how that can impact um, an entire culture, an entire country, and an entire industry. And so I think that's where it goes back to the Sherpa to have that advisory, have that consultation to just let them, you know, to educate them on here are some sensitive topics and why. And I mean, uh, go back to like, when they kept John Bon Jovi's plane sitting outside uh, the Shanghai gate with two sold out shows in Shanghai and a dream of all of Bon Jovi to play in Shanghai. And they discovered um, a meme on the drummers, um, Facebook page, you know, that said something about the Dalai Lama or whatever. And now you're banned from operating or doing these shows. And, you know, uh, every time that we experience this with in our sports world, our athletes is, you know, just, they, they, it's kind of a dumbfounded, you know, well, well, I had no idea it would be this big. Well, yeah, yes, it, it, it can be that big and this is why. And I think if you're there to, educate, advise, and assist when the, something like that goes down, um, it's much better. And ultimately, you know, if you're using a third party, they can bear the risk rather than destroying the brand or the team or whatever that is here.
1: Yeah. And, and just to add to that, I mean, so Red Phoenix has always in and, and every presentation we've given to a team or an athlete, that has always been a cornerstone of our presentation is that, look, if we're going to take you to China, we we need to talk about china and we need to talk about china's uh political climate and you know some of the hot button issues and and as an individual or a team you know how to how to handle that and you know it's funny i i clearly remember in some of those presentations that's kind of the part of the presentation where everyone's like oh okay yeah great you know we have to learn about the culture but i think now more than ever you know it, it's it's even more apparent on how important that is to understand the culture that you're about to go into. and it doesn't matter if it's China or Japan or I mean anywhere even the us I mean there's certain issues that you have to be aware of, and um as a business going in there, you should be well aware of um of what of how you, you know you should be talking about these issues if at all um and so it's definitely something that that we stress uh with athletes and again i mean to life's point you know we live in a different society here and, and we're not trying to say what's right or wrong it's just if you want to do business abroad you should always know um and have insight into the cultures in which you're about to do
0: business in guys thanks very much for being on the show last question what is your best piece of advice for doing business in china
2: Thank you for having us on the show. Um, I hope it was informative and valuable. Um, I'm going to give the same answer that I gave to your accelerator second or first (laughs) accelerator class years ago in Dolly. Rule number one, anything is possible in China. Rule number two, everything is difficult in China. So when you're excited and all eager about entering the new market and everything, you know, see rule number two. But if you're ready to give up, throw in the towel and blow your head off, see rule number one. That's my advice.
0: David, Leif, how can people get in touch with you, get in touch with Red Phoenix? Where can they like, share, follow, email? How do they How do they find you?
1: So our email address is management at redphoenixentertainment.com. And that will come to both Leif and myself.
0: This was absolutely informative and entertaining. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Todd.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai